Section 8 of Mimic Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Stella by Anna Koromawit Ritchie. Chapter 8. One day without a rehearsal. One single welcome day in that toilsome week. Virginius was announced for repetition on Saturday night and, having once been acted during Mr. Tennant's engagement, no further rehearsal was required. The brilliant comedy of Much Ado About Nothing was selected for Monday night. The hours usually occupied at rehearsal, Stella passed with her tutor. Her second embodiment of Virginia was a more artistic performance than the first, yet characterized by equal freshness and freedom from mannerism. The evening would have been one of unalloyed exultation, but for the determined persecution of Miss Doran. Though she had no character to personate in the tragedy, she chose to remain behind the scenes and sought in a hundred trivial ways to annoy the detested novice. Mr. Swain enacted Isilius as before. It was very obvious that he entertained a growing admiration for the representative of Virginia. The unfeigned jealousy of Miss Doran gratified his vanity. Stella was surprised and mortified by the preposterous airs that he now assumed, the insinuating tone in which he ventured to address her, his languishing glances and assiduous attentions. These impertinent advances were repelled with the most frigid hauteur. In that short week, her character had developed with gigantic growth. Dark shadows were introduced into the picture, before all light, and by their somber aid its distinguishing features were more strongly revealed. Sabbath, blessed Sabbath! Never had this day been so welcome to Stella. When life was but a pastime, existence a holiday, divided between the pursuit of pleasure and the struggle against ennui, she had too often looked upon Sunday as a period of weariness, an interruption to the amusements of the week. The rigid observance of the sacred day in New England grew irksome, and she listlessly moved through a round of cold, vitality-lacking formalities, she might have said, with the unrepenting king, My words fly up, my thoughts remain below, words without thought, never to heaven go. But, now that her mind had been chained to the rack, that all her faculties had been summoned into use, that she had experienced fatigue even to exhaustion, the Sabbath was truly a day for rest, a day for devotion, a day for spiritual instruction, such as her heart expanded and craved to receive. For the first time she recognized its holiness and was penetrated by that calming influence produced by the absence from labor and all around her. Mattie entered Stella's chambers several times that Sabbath morning and found her in a refreshing sleep a smile just parting her lips no playbook but a bible lying upon the pillow one delicate finger was closed in the volume as though she had fallen into a trance-like slumber as she read and angels were repeating to her in dreams the scripture's holy promises she did not rise until the inviting bells had ceased their solemn summons to morning worship when her mother returned from church 
she found her looking calmer and more invigorated than she had appeared for weeks. The change in Stella's mode of life, the energy she daily displayed, had wrought a marked effect upon Mrs. Rosenfeld. Her apathy had partially disappeared. Her mind was no longer wholly absorbed in rebellion against her sorrows. The sluggishness induced by a constant contemplation of self was dispelled. Through the daughter's incessant activity, there were helpful mental influences communicated to the mother's spirit. She was forced to think of her child, to take some interest in the stirring events of her theatrical career. Mrs. Rosenfeld even began to hint at a period when she might witness one of her daughter's performances. Her hours were no longer passed in utter idleness. She not unfrequently found Maddie and her assistant so hurried in preparation of the new costumes that even Mrs. Rosenvelt's inefficient aid was gratefully welcomed. Ernest had written to his sister several times. The instant that he found his remonstrances were unavailing, he encouraged and sustained her by his advice and countenance. But her first marked successes did not alter his original opinion. He still regarded the step she had taken as fearfully hazardous, still looked forward tremblingly to evil results. Stella accompanied her mother to the afternoon service. Never had the anthem sounded so holy. Never had her spirit been so lifted up by prayer. Never had she been so touched by the exhortation of the preacher. She had sat under his ministry from childhood, and often thought him dry and dull. Now he appeared inspired. The change was not in him, but in herself. Her perceptions were quickened, her heart softened, her mind became receptive. As Mrs. Rosenvelt and her daughter returned home, they encountered Mr. Percy. He started as though some phantom of his thoughts had suddenly risen up before him. The flush that suffused his manly countenance was reflected on Stella's face. As he bowed, hesitated, and then, with a confused, unintelligible apology, joined them. A few steps more brought them to Mrs. Rosenvelt's residence. The door was opened. He lingered, conversing with Stella. Courtesy compelled the mother to invite him to enter. The joyful alacrity with which he complied somewhat shocked her strict rules of propriety. Let those who will deny that love is the spontaneous rushing together of two kindred spirits which belong to each other, which, when united, form a perfect whole, which oftentimes recognize their internal affinity the instant they meet. The attraction Edwin Percy experienced towards this young girl from the moment when he first gazed upon her can be defined by no term but the hackneyed, misapplied, often profane word, love. If Stella's heart throbbed with answering pulsation, she was not conscious of their stroke. In this one instance, the knowledge that flashes upon men penetrates slowly, piercing many a veil and barrier to woman's recognition. Percy's unfortunate initiation into a theater his brief acquaintance with the discordant elements at war within its walls, added to the failure of his own play through conspiracy of the actors, created in his mind a strong distaste for the theatrical profession. 
he could not endure to think that a being so peerless in her purity and loveliness should long be exposed to the jarring influences to the selfishness the malevolence the dreary intercourse with inferior natures she must perforce encounter in a career which she had so rashly chosen his hand would snatch her from such desecration the myrtle and the orange blossom would woo her to forget the soul-bewildering laurel love's tender breathings would fill her ears with richer music than the thousand-tongued acclamations such was his dream they had conversed on many subjects before stella delicately alluded to the misadventures of the friday night what intolerable mental torture you must have endured she remarked sympathizingly the poet's dark eyes were passionately eloquent as he answered what living man could fear the worst of fortune's malice wert thou near stella looked confused for an instant then with womanly tact she turned the conversation into commonplace channels as the young dramatist walked musingly to his home that night his failing play appeared the enchanted key to life's dearest triumph the morn again brought to the novitiate actress the necessity of study the sense of oppressive responsibility of nervous excitement which had been banished for a day returned the most thorough familiarity with shakespeare's quaint phraseology is requisite in the personation of beatrice stella appreciated the value of her author's text to the full but she had been forced to memorize with great rapidity more than once at rehearsal her memory proved treacherous she had been warned by mr oakland against the slipshod habit of gabbling in a senseless manner over the language of a part without an effort to embody the character but when she endeavoured to assume the tone and mien befitting the joyous caustic beatrice the attempt proved signally infelicitous miss doran enacted hero and her presence exerted some stupefying influence in the stage versions of shakespeare's plays a large portion of the original text is omitted numerous passages which were tolerated in the lax days of the virgin queen are suppressed as a matter of course yet not a few objectionable phrases remain these are delivered or expunged at the discretion of stars but the regular members of the company are expected to follow the copy in the prompter's hands mr oakland had erased from stella's volume of much ado about nothing certain witty but offensive lines stella passed them over at rehearsal mr alsop without reflecting upon their import prompted her in his usual business-like manner i do not speak those sentences was her mild reply miss doran thought this an admirable opportunity to hold up her rival to ridicule she hid her face in her hands with the air of mock confusion exclaiming oh dear how modest we are mr alsop i am shocked how could you how could you you naughty man prompt such dreadful lines oh what a blessing it is that we've got such a saint among us i'll order ascension robes to be made in the wardrobe at once we're all safe to go to heaven hanging on to her train everybody but stella laughed the angry sensations to which she had twice before been betrayed were kindled anew 
The wrathful reply which sprang to her lips was stifled with difficulty. Mr. Finch now called everyone to order, and the play proceeded without further interruption, except an occasional sneer from Miss Doran whenever Stella threw a touch of lightness into her part. Unequal to the task of representing Beatrice as Stella deemed herself in the morning, she was not prepared to be weighed in the scale and found so lamentably wanting as she proved at night. The personation of a dashing comic part requires greater ease and a more thorough stage knowledge than a sublime tragic embodiment. Stella made a vain effort to depict the sparkling, rollicking, brilliancy, the half-spiteful mirth, the meaning glances, the ringing laughter of the merry lady who misprized all she looked upon. The exuberant witticism of Beatrice fell pointless upon the ears of her auditors. Stella tried to laugh, but the notes died hoarsely away in her throat. Her air of forced gaiety might have been mistaken for affectation rather than mirth. Even her step, which should have been rapid and elastic, was slow and almost heavy. Her countenance owed half its beauty to bright, rapidly varying expression, but this evening her visage was, at times, a perfect blank. It had never looked less lovely. A constrained, unnatural smile only touched without wreathing her lips, while her eyes were clouded by a most opposite expression. Her Beatrice was, indeed, heavy lightness, serious vanity. Miss Doran had outdressed her. The rich brocade with its scarlet flowers interwound with vines of gold embroidery, the coquettish Spanish hat, and the long waving plumes threw Stella's less costly blue and satin and plumeless headdress into the shade. She was painfully conscious of the inappropriateness of her quiet costume to her lively role, but in the midst of her perplexity, her eyes more than once rested upon a talismanic bouquet which she carried, and then, for a moment, the wanted radiance returned to her face. Those flowers had been found in her dressing-room at the theatre. The few lines which accompanied them Stella had not tossed into the dressing-case, nor had she confided to her watchful dressing-maid from whence they had came. Every time the young actress was required to appear upon the stage, she notified Mattie whereabouts she would make her exit, and bade her be there with the book. The instant Stella passed out of sight of the audience, she seized the volume from her attendant's hand and studied without pause. In one scene alone did she, in some degree, redeem the somberness and feebleness of her delineation. It was that in which Beatrice indignantly defends her friend and urges Benedict to espouse the injured hero's cause and call Claudio to account. Throughout the whole of the play, which had seemed to her to drag its slow length unendingly along, it was the only time that a hand was raised in testimony of encouragement. She learned that, if public favor may be won by brilliant efforts, it is as rapidly lost, or at least jeopardized, by a single night's insufficiency. "'Will you permit me to escort you home?' asked a well-remembered voice, as Stella and Mattie emerged through the stage door into the street. Stella mutely accepted the proffered arm. 
in vain mr percy ignored her failure in beatrice his praises did not remove her deep sense of mortification she entertained too great a veneration for her art to be satisfied in the absence of self-approbation can i not make you think as little of to-night's performance as i do he asked as they parted no i fear not i might if i could make you think more of of me good night was stella's unsatisfactory reply as she entered her home that night she lay awake for hours re-enacting beatrice in thought now she wondered how she could have delivered such a passage so stupidly how she could have been guilty of such blundering readings now she felt indignant with miss doran for outdressing her for outshining her yes outshining her for the simple but lovable character of the wronged hero had been invested with such a prominence which left a dull beatrice in the background stella could not banish the play from her thoughts it seemed as though some invisible being turned over the pages by her side and read aloud in her ears at last thoroughly exhausted she sank to sleep but woke stifling with the successless attempt to execute a mirthful laugh when she slept again the dream was only repeated with increased vividness and a hilarious variation of the torment it was too dreadful she would not dare not sleep again she rose seated herself by the window and looked out into the silent gas-lighted street immediately beneath the lamp-post stood a theatrical placard bearing her own name and that of beatrice in huge letters how she loathed the very sight she turned impatiently away threw herself on the bed and wept until morning when she joined her mother at breakfast mattie brought in the daily papers stella seized them with avidity there was no cautious friend at hand to shut her from the sight of all indiscriminate haphazard condemnation or blame both are pernicious to the youthful artist who is too apt to be wildly elated or unduly depressed in the very first journal she opened stella found her name linked with the severest strictures the critic was merciless but she was forced to acknowledge that he was just this gall tasted the more bitterly because the honey of unqualified praise still lingered on her lips as she walked to rehearsal with her veil thickly folded over her face her eyes bent on the ground she felt like some guilty creature whose misdeeds were the theme of every tongue she could not bear to encounter the members of the company she was certain they would triumph over her threatened downfall the repetition of evadne was selected for that night the rehearsal was of romeo and juliet that tragedy was to be enacted on the succeeding evening mr belton had called a rehearsal both on tuesday and wednesday that stella might be familiarized with the varying character of juliet what ails you my dear child inquired mrs fairfax who was representing juliet's garrulous nurse a masterpiece of acting stella drew her aside before she replied you did not see last night's shameful failure you were not here no but of course i heard of it one hears of everything in a theatre 
a novice should not have undertaken beatrice but as mr tennant selects the plays of course you had no choice i have never suffered so much in my life i did not know that i could endure such frightful sensations my head has felt as though it were bursting ever since and i hardly know what i am doing my dear miss rosenvelt said the experienced actress taking both of the young girl's hands into her own this is the ordeal through which all who attain eminence must invariably pass do not let it conquer you rouse yourself and you will be victorious over these trifles stella was not consoled she exclaimed in a tone of anguish oh i feel so humiliated i cannot bear to lift my eyes to any face what a presumptuous fool all these people must think me how evidently they scorn me not exactly but give actors a fair chance and they are sure to ridicule one another they particularly rejoice over the dimming of a star because it proves that there is not such a decided superiority of the greater luminaries over the lesser act greatly to-night personate evadne as they tell me you did a few evenings ago and your beatrice will sink into oblivion all memory of it will be lost in their admiration see said stella bearing her lacerated and now inflamed arms we fight for favor here and may glory in our scars it seems there were nails purposefully thrust into that statue to tear my arms when i clasp it and to hinder my delivering evadne's noble rebuke to the king but the nails did not make me flinch they could not have stopped me had they pierced the very soles of my feet what a cruel act who could have done that was it not perhaps some carelessness of the property man stella communicated her suspicions concerning the perpetrator of the deed mrs fairfax sighed i know too well that the tendency of this profession is to generate the bitterest sensations of envy in narrow natures i have even seen husbands and wives so envious of each other that when their dramatic talents were unequally contrasted the most rancorous hatred seemed to exist between them but to liberal and well-regulated minds these passions find no admission or they are only called forth to be conquered and this this is the life exclaimed stella bitterly which so many young light-hearted beings who watch the brilliant actress through her brief hours of triumph are panting to adopt which they believe to be so full of allurements of bewildering delights this life which nurse and juliet dead dead shouted fisk and stella could not proceed mrs fairfax had not given her falsely flattering hopes her shortcomings in beatrice were not only forgotten by the actors but by the audience when they beheld her grand performance of evadne forgotten by every one but herself but the excited state of her mind only intensified her embodiment she was deaf to miss doran's sneers unconscious of her impertinent surveillance the spectators rewarded her with an unprecedented ovation but did stella's former exultant state return no 
While she stood before the audience, she lost all recollection of herself, but the scene once over, the words of the pitiless critic haunted her again. Her slumbers were not more soothing than were those of the preceding night. She was representing Evadne in the place of Beatrice, but no longer acting in triumph. She imagined herself delivering the language in a ludicrous, bombastic tone, now forgetting the words, now constrained, in spite of herself to adopt Miss Doran's inflated style, now pierced to the very heart by bayonet-like nails, now frantically clinging to the statue which gave way and fell, crushing her with its ponderous weight. When Mrs. Fairfax met her young favorite at the second rehearsal of Juliet, she was struck by the strangeness of her manner, the incoherence of her reply, the wild gleaming of her eyes, her crimson cheeks and burning hands. My dear Miss Rosenvelt, Stella, do try to calm yourself. These excitements are too much for you. I fear that you are ill, quite ill. Ill? No, no, laughed Stella. You see, I can laugh at the very idea. Nobody here must be ill. Nobody must suffer. Or, if they do, they must seem as if they did not. One must enjoy an immunity from all mortal ills to be an actress. Such are the stage tyrannous requirements. It's quite laughable. It makes me merry. If only I could have laughed so in Beatrice. Don't look at me with such alarmed face. I'm not ill. I'm nothing but what Juliet was. Her head must have grown giddy after she quaffed the potion and swam as mine does now. But I have only drunk the draught which the kind, judicious, lenient public offered. It may be poison, who knows? But I'll not throw away the cup until I reach the dregs. There was an unsettled look in her glittering eyes, an abruptness in her speech, which became more and more apparent. Miss Fairfax took Mattie aside. I am distressed about Miss Rosenfeld. She has studied too much. I am afraid of the effect this constant tension has on her nerves. Will not her mother persuade her to take a few days' rest? Ah, ma'am, how is Miss Stella to be persuaded? She will have her own way, that's her one fault. When I talk to her, she tells me that she has bound herself to the hardest of taskmasters, the public, and that the public will not allow her to rest without stripping her of the honor she has won. But would her mother's urgent entreaty have some weight? A mother could hardly be made to see her state. If she did, she would only grieve, but not argue with her. My mistress never could bear the exertion of doing that. Mrs. Fairfax was not to be discreet in her attempts to snatch this young girl from the perilous situation. She had met Ernest Rosenvelt in the profession and resolved to write him and warn him of his sister's danger. Stella's state throughout the day gave Mattie deep concern. Sudden bursts of hilarity were succeeded by fits of gloom, deep abstracted silence by a voluble mirth. Her mother told her that she had grown eccentric since she had become an actress. Mattie looked at her sorrowfully and entreated her to rest. When it wanted but a half an hour of the time at which she must leave for the theater, she was persuaded to lie down. She fastened her watch to the pillow, in dread that the moments would slip away unnoted, that she would be late, she closed her eyes for a few seconds, then roused herself to look at the watch, then shut her eyes again, but a minute turned to the watch again. 
and in this manner a half-hour passed. Shortly before she appeared on stage that night, she encountered Perdita, weeping bitterly. Floy was trying to console her, in a strange, affectionate fashion of his own, patting her wet cheeks, smoothing down her hair, laying his uncouth face on her shoulder, and whispering to her tenderly, "'Such a house! Such a house!' as though that information were a panacea for all human ills. His language was limited to two or three phrases, and these were the only words he ever used in the theatre. His feelings were conveyed by variations of tone, as expressive as the most appropriate utterance." And why was the usually tranquil Perdita weeping so violently? Stella paused to inquire, though her question was oddly framed. Tears, Perdita, off the stage? Tears? What a sheer waste of dramatic material! We all weep for hire here, and can afford to spend our tears for naught. Paint them this passion before the footlights, or what is the good of tears? "'Such a house! Such a house!' reiterated Floy rebukingly. His intonation conveyed that it was very ungrateful of Perdita to weep when she had that first of theatrical blessings, a crowded audience. Stella pressed the sobbing girl for an explanation. Her father, whose duty it was to represent one of the guests at the Capulets' festival, had entered the theatre in such a besotted condition that he could not be even persuaded to dress. He would be dismissed if he failed to appear. The ballroom was so scantily supplied with guests that his absence would undoubtedly be noticed. What was to become of him if he lost his situation? Unworthy as he appeared, Perdita was devotedly attached to her degraded parent, for, like the lowly reed, her love could drink its nurture from the scantiest rill. She would rather a misfortune befell herself or even her witless brother than to be visited upon him. "'Where is your father?' asked Stella. "'There he lies.' He was doubled up in a corner, not very distant from the prompter's seat, sleeping so profoundly that there was very little chance of rousing him. "'Juliet! Call-a-a-old!' said Fisk, capering up to her, and then added, "'Look out for fun tonight. Poddle's your maternal antecedent, and isn't she rigged off within an inch of her life? Only the fun's gone out of her a deal since the night of the fire. Won that a fine conflagration of her own. But Poddle's got the blues!' Juliet appeared upon the stage a few moments with her nurse and her mother, and then was led by Paris into the ballroom of the Capulet's stately mansion. Immediately after she entered, the dancing commenced. Stella sat watching Perdita's pliant form floating through the dance. The aeriality of her motions, the pensive sweetness of her countenance, rendered her conspicuous among her less refined companions. O oh, light glancing feet of the poor ballet girl, who in that admiring audience dreams of the heavy heart thou art bearing through the mazes of the dance, who imagines that the limbs thou art moving so gracefully to harmonious sounds are weighted down by aching weariness, that the glittering gods which rise and fall with every breath are stirred by the beating of anguish-quickened pulses. Juliet, 
was the most faultless of all Stella's personations. She threw off the trammels of stage conventionalities and struck out new beauties undiscovered by the hackney actress who treads in the beaten steps of some great predecessor. Stella's embodiment was characterized by an impassioned self-abandonment that bore her spectators with her as upon an impetuous tide her audience became a finely tuned instrument in her hand and responded to the plaintive sweeping the loud smiting of the strings shared in her dreamy musings her ingenious impulsive confessions to romeo her sportive cajoling of her nurse her burst of petty petulance and as the character of juliet gradually expands echoed her devotion her intense agony her heroism her firmness of purpose and the horrors through which her spirit is plunged when she quaffs the friar's potion and calling upon the name of romeo sinks into death-like insensibility the fourth act of the play closes with the entranced juliet lying on her couch surrounded by her weeping parents her nurse her affianced husband and the holy friar the scene was near its conclusion when suddenly there was heard a crashing fall behind the scenes accompanied by a loud cry of horror one side of the curtain rapidly descended but without injuring any one upon the stage for the performers were all gathered around juliet's bed a ponderous weight by means of which the curtain was elevated had given way the opposite side of the curtain was now carefully lowered stella though she was not startled by the sound of the heavy fall did not stir until the audience was excluded from view as she rose up she beheld a crowd of actors all running towards one corner near the seat of the prompter she was eagerly following them when miss fairfax drew her arms about her and forcibly attempted to impede her progress ejaculating come back don't look don't look it's too horrible oh the poor fellow stella had already caught one glimpse of the prostrate figure the head crushed in by an iron weight the spouting crimson stream the limbs still writhing in a death agony who is it who is it gasped perdita pressing through the throng followed by floy not my father oh not my father he would lie there mr martin seized perdita's arm and held her back floy had thrown himself on the body and at the sound of his piteous lamentations she broke from the actor's grasp stella completely stunned was supported by miss fairfax and mattie mr finch's voice reached their ears he was addressing the prompter bid the orchestra strike up quickly that the audience may not hear the poor boy's cries if they get wind of this accident the theatre will be empty in a moment the shock will hurt our business for a week make haste also don't stand there man as though you were petrified speak to them through the trumpet make them play loudly at once such was the stage manager's cold-blooded order in the very presence of death stella with a convulsive movement slipped through the arms that supported her and sank upon the ground she had lost all self-control and broke forth in a succession of hysterical screams and sobs Mr. Finch lifted her in his strong arms and bore her, shrieking, to her room. Poor Mattie was almost distracted. Mrs. Fairfax, with tender care, used her best efforts to restore the composure of the horror-stricken girl. 
her labors proved quite fruitless. After a time, Mr. Belton knocked for admission. He entered, took a seat beside Stella, and addressed her somewhat austerely. Miss Rosenfeld, you really must compose yourself. It is absolutely necessary. You cannot be indulged any longer. The play has been interrupted for some time. Fortunately, the audience has kept in ignorance of the sad accident, but the curtain has been down for such an interval that people are now being impatient. I must insist upon your exerting more self-control and preparing to finish your part. The unexpected, apparently inhuman request amazed Stella into sudden quietude. My part? I can't... I can't act any more tonight. I can't... After witnessing that terrible sight, that dying man, his wretched children, the audience cannot expect it. The audience have nothing to do with the private distresses of those whose business it is to entertain them, replied Mr. Belton in a severe tone. The play cannot be interrupted. You have but one short scene more in which you only have a few lines to utter. You must manage to get through them. Impossible. Very possible if you will make the effort. Probably you thought it was impossible to stop screaming a moment ago. We are losing time, Miss Fairfax. I depend on your kindness to hasten Miss Rosenfeld's preparations. Bring her down at once. There was an intonation of command in Mr. Belton's voice that compelled obedience. He left the room, and Miss Fairfax, without a remark, commenced unfastening Stella's dress that it might be exchanged for the rich garments in which, according to the custom of her country, Juliet is decked for her internment. Mrs. Fairfax's manner seemed to imply that there was no appeal from Mr. Belton's decision. His voice was all potential. Stella was so much awed, bewildered, astonished, that she could not resist. Despite her rapid toilette, the wild expression which had before attracted Mrs. Fairfax's attention returned to her eyes. Fisk came to the door, but his voice was subdued to a husky whisper as he announced that Mr. Belton had sent him with his compliments to say that the curtain had risen. Mattie noted that the boy's face was blanched, and he shook from head to foot. He was standing so near the spot when the accident occurred that his shoes were stained with the spurting blood. Come, my dear. Let us go down, said Mrs. Fairfax. The scenes are not very long before Romeo burst open the tomb, and I want to arrange you comfortably. Assisted by Mattie, she almost carried the young girl down the stairs. They laid her upon the narrow, sable-covered couch in the supposed ancestral vault of the Capulets, a square enclosure formed of darkly painted scenes. An antique lamp, which set forth a lurid light, was suspended from the roof. Stella looked around with a shudder. Mrs. Fairfax, after arranging her dress in smooth folds and whispering a few encouraging words, prepared to close the sepulchral doors upon her. But Stella sprang up with a cry and said, Don't leave me. I can't stay here alone. Indeed, I can't. I cannot get through with the part. In a moment, the scene would be changed and the tomb would be disclosed to the audience. The doors could not be opened until they were broken through by Romeo. Fasten the doors, said Mrs. Fairfax to the carpenters, who were waiting to complete their duty. I will stay with Miss Rosenvelt. I can hide myself here. She pressed round to the side of the couch, which was distant from the audience, 
and there crouched down in a painful position but with her hand clasping stella's the scene unclosed they listened to the touching tribute of paris to the memory of his lost juliet as he scattered flowers before her tomb sweet flower with flowers i strew thy bridal bed sweet tomb that in thy circuit dost contain the perfect model of eternity fair juliet that with the angels dost remain accept this latest favour at my hands that living honour thee and being dead with funeral praises do adorn thy tomb then came the warning whistle of the boy followed by romeo's entrance the combat between the lovers and the death of paris now courage brave girl in a moment more he will break open the doors do not stir think how much depends upon your proving that you have not miscalculated your powers that you are fitted for the profession you have entered mrs fairfax drew her hand away and wholly concealed herself the doors were forced apart juliet in her bridal robes lay motionless in the sight of the audience in defiance of good taste the original scene was here supplanted by a stage version which is preferred by actors but denounced by all critics according to shakespeare juliet does not wake until romeo is dead in the version sanctioned by the stage custom the agonies are piled olympus high through the meeting of the lovers after romeo has swallowed the poison he bears the wakened Juliet from the tomb and, after a scene made up of frantic demonstrations, expires. Juliet has but a few incoherent lines to deliver during Romeo's death struggles. These Stella attempted to utter, but not one word was intelligible. After Romeo's death, she prayed no heed to the friar's entrance, made no answer to his queries, spoke not a single line set down, she seemed to remember but one act which she was to execute that which would conclude the play she silently seized romeo's dagger rose up stabbed herself and sank beside her lover's body the woeful haggard expression of her face her inarticulate utterance her evident mental and physical exhaustion gave effect even to this abrupt and original termination the curtain fell amidst a tumult of applause. Not till then was Mrs. Fairfax released from her painful captivity. Mr. Belton requested Stella not return to her room until she had acknowledged the summons of the audience. She answered him by a vacant stare, but allowed herself to be led across the stage in front of the curtain. Her look, as she made a mechanical obeisance, was almost ghastly her lips had not yet been taught to assume the professional smile with which the suffering actress veils her real emotion stella was unable to walk home mattie went in search of a carriage she encountered mr perry who awaited stella at the stage door and related to him the terrible accident of the evening he entreated her to return to miss rosenfeld and to allow him to find a conveyance stella seemed scarcely cognizant of what passed around her but as someone lifted her with tender solicitude into the carriage, she recognized the voice which said, You are suffering, and I cannot leave you yet. Do not refuse me a seat. Her silence was not construed into a denial. She was totally unable to converse. Mr. Percy would not have disturbed her by a question, 
though he exchanged a few remarks with Maddie, which were chiefly designed for Stella's ear. Poor Perdita, poor Perdita, sighed Stella several times, but those were the only words she uttered. End of section 8